I'd like to start by welcoming everyone to this um, amazing discussion about a very critical, critical issue that we are all facing at this time. We asked registrants what their greatest concern is with regard to COVID-19, and we received over 6,000 very thoughtful responses that we are still analyzing. We pulled out three representative remarks that we'd like to share with you at this time. The first comment is that my biggest concern is disruption in supply chain for my clients, erosion of opportunity to raise additional funding due to heightened risk of repayment, high risk of customer default in loan repayment, erosion of shareholders' equity, high solvency rate and business failure, managing business post-COVID-19. A second comment was, I'm most concerned about our people. Our country does not provide unemployment benefits to its people. We believe in people before profits and will continue to support our people for as long as we possibly can. But without revenues, we cannot continue indefinitely. The general health of the citizens and how this virus has ruined economies all over the world, so much, so much more. People have lost their source of livelihood, their income, and most importantly, they may have lost loved ones in the process. So while we are very happy for the opportunity to gather the private sector, we also must take a moment and remember those who have lost their lives to this pandemic, to those who are hospitalized, to those families that are caring for them, and to those people who are on the front line. And I ask that we have just a quick moment of silence to remember those who are impacted in those ways from this pandemic. One moment of silence, please. Thank you very much. Well, we couldn't be any more pleased with the panel that we've put together today, led by Professor Linda Hill. Um, I'm going to do um, an introduction for all of our panelists, but I must say that what I'd like to do, you can read their biographies, you can look on our website, and they will introduce themselves, but I would like to give you some perspective on each of our panelists. Um, Linda Hill, is the Wallace Brett Dunham Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School, and she's the faculty chair of the Leadership Initiative. She's the co-author of Collective Genius, The Art and Practice of Leading Innovation. She's the co-founder of Paradox Strategies and the co-creator of Innovation Quotient. But what I'd like everybody to know is that Linda Hill, and while she doesn't put this on her CV, was the first black woman tenured at Harvard Business School. She was my professor over 30 years ago. And I came to know her when I was living in South Africa in the late 1990s. And she traveled to South Africa extensively, doing a tremendous amount of research on leaders in South Africa, writing case studies and research reports on leaders in South Africa. And that is what helped me to understand how Linda would be able to talk today so knowledgeably about leadership in crisis for African business leaders and to lead this panel. We couldn't ask for a better expert in that regard. The next person that I'd like to introduce is Mr. Felucia Phillips. Felucia Phillips is the chairman of Phillips Consulting, which is the largest indigenously owned consulting firm on the continent of Africa. And we were very careful to try to find speakers today who had a pan-African perspective, who could speak to this pandemic, across more than just one country. 
people who have an opportunity to tell us what is happening across sectors and across geographies. In addition to his role as the executive chairman of Phillips Consulting, Felucia Phillips is also the chairman of the Nigeria South Africa Chamber of Commerce and has facilitated flows of business between Nigeria and South Africa for over 20 years. Kuseni Dlamini, he is the chair of MassMart. MassMart is a Johannesburg Stock Exchange listed company, the second largest distributor of consumer goods in Africa, the leading, and the, on the leading general retailer on the continent of general merchandise, liquor and home improvement equipment and supplies. MassMart has 443 stores in 13 countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. But in addition to that, he brings a lot of perspective also from the healthcare industry because he's also the chairman of Aspen Pharmaceuticals, Aspen Pharmacare, the leading pharmaceutical manufacturer in the Southern Hemisphere with operations in over 50 countries. We have Jay Ireland. Jay is a, a tremendous leader, someone who leads from the heart, someone who is the former CEO of GE Africa. Jay is generally credited with having made GE Africa into the $20 billion business that it is with operations in over 32 countries across the continent, across multiple sectors, all of the major sectors in which GE operates, including healthcare. Jay, I had the pleasure of getting to know um, during the time that we both served on President Obama's advisory board for doing business in Africa. Jay chaired that commission very ably and led recommendations to facilitate business and improve trade and investment onto the, onto, onto the African continent. Fred Swanaker, founder and CEO of African Leadership Group, someone else that I've known for a very, very long time. Fred founded the African Leadership Academy, a one of its kind, once in a generation type leader. Time Magazine named him one of the top 100 people for 2019. I've watched Fred go from success to success, starting off with the African Leadership Academy, which was his vision for, for establishing a pan-African secondary institution that would bring leaders from all across the continent and educate them in a uniquely African way, looking at African curriculum, African values. He's gone on to found the African Leadership University, which has two campuses, one in Rwanda, one in Mauritius. So I thank you all for being with us today. And I think with that, I would like to turn it over to Linda Hill. It is an inspiration and a privilege to be with all of you. I very much appreciate this opportunity because we all need the guidance and the support of each other to get us through what is going to be a pretty harrowing experience, I think, and already has been for so many. What we get to do today is have a conversation with three, four leaders all of whom, as you've heard, are quite dis distinguished and have this Pan-African point of view. We know that this is a global pandemic, but it's also very much a local one. So we wanted to make sure we had representation, broad representation as much as we could, at least in the time that we have, of people who've looked at Africa as a continent knowing very well that we're not going to be able to copy and paste what one country or one leader is doing in his or her circumstance and just apply it to ours. We're going to have to adapt it. So what I hope we can do today is have a conversation that will allow you to make more informed decisions and implement those decisions with speed, because speed does matter in this instance. And we all have a role to play in saving the lives and livelihoods of those in our organizations, in our communities, and in our country. 
And it's a tall order, but we have the right panel here, here to help us with this task. When I spoke to the panel and I spoke to the Africa.com group about what, in, what, what were your concerns, we ended up with a very long list. And I want to tell you, they included how do I lead my organization? How do I meet the needs of the people in my community, in my country? How do I make sure that I play a role in building the kind of coalitions we're going to have to build to tackle what is a systemic problem, whether they be tri-sector coalitions or pan-African coalitions? How do I take care of myself so that I can be up to this task? And finally, and maybe it's a, it's a theme that cuts through all the other topics, how do I actually exercise courage, give voice to my values, and be what Fred refers to as a consequential leader? Now, we only have an hour and 10 minutes to speak with you on the panel, another sort of 20 to take questions and answer those questions. So I have made a decision to go for depth a bit and really, I must confess, give up some of the breadth of what you'd like to talk about. So there are other sessions and hopefully you'll get to some of those in the future. But this session is about, again, how do you use yourself as an instrument to get things done? Because no matter what your definition of leadership, that is what leadership is about. And again, the focus is not going to be so much on exploring what are the challenges. We're going to talk about the challenges, but we want to talk about those challenges in a way that we begin to think about how we address them. So we're going to have a very, if you will, hopeful stance about what each of us can do to make a difference. So in that regard, we've decided to have a very informal panel. I can tell you we have some very great storytellers on this panel, but I've asked them to be succinct so that we can sort of get through as much as we can but tell your stories if you need to. And we have prepared some questions, but we're going to be flexible and move along as we need to. And we're going to use first names. So I think that we've already had introductions, but I said to the panelists, I'd give them a moment to say whatever they might like to tell you about themselves to set the stage for what they're going to, to say to us as we move forward. So I don't know who'd like to get us started. Uh, on my screen, Fred, you're one of the first people. So maybe I'll ask you to take your minute to say something you might want to say about yourself so people will understand your point of view. Thank you, Linda. Um, so yeah, my name is Fred Swanika. I'm a Ghanaian, but I've, I've lived and worked in about 10 different countries on the continent. So I really see myself uh, as an African first and a Ghanaian second. Um, and uh, so I'm very passionate about Africa. And I think a lot about what it's going to take to move this continent forward. And I think that leadership is the most important ingredient we need on this continent. So I've dedicated my life and uh, you know, to trying to develop 3 million leaders for Africa in the next 15 years. So that's really what I do and what I hope I can contribute today. Thank you. Jay? Yeah, thank you, uh, Linda. Um, I'm Jay Ireland, uh, as you heard, former CEO of GE. Currently, I'm a senior advisor for Covington and Burling's Global Regulatory and Policy uh, Practice for Africa. So I'm still staying connected, especially around policy and regulatory issues for a number of clients and helping them build their, their business in Africa. And then I'm also on the board, one of the key boards I'm on is the MasterCard Foundation, which is really focused on youth employment in Africa amongst a number of different um, ventures and initiatives. And, uh, and now really focused on helping uh, the continent uh, address the COVID uh, scourge and figuring out where we can really make the most impact. So I'm still connected. I live in New York now. Uh, 
but I lived for eight years uh, prior to last year and uh, enjoy still being tied into the continent. I hope to talk about leadership is ab absolutely critical in this time frame of any crisis, uh, but especially this one is, is so broad reaching across every, every sector that, uh, that we know. Loshu, you show your next to my screen. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, everybody. Um, and uh, Teresa, well done on putting this together. I think uh, you're a very, very brave lady. But having said that, um, my name is Felicia Phillips, and uh, I am the chairman of uh, Phillips Consulting, as Teresa said. It's a 28-year-old uh, Nigerian consulting firm, and uh, we, we would like to pride ourselves in being one of the largest uh, in the country. Um, what I've focused on for so many, many years has been on trying to see how Africa can build institutions. Uh, and so the bulk of the work we've done over the years has been how can we help all our African organizations, big or small, in looking at the major things that help to create some strong, solid uh, institutions that, uh, that will succeed themselves. And uh, talking about succession, you know, I, um, I'm right in the middle of stepping back in my own firm after 28 years of having a managing director, a whole brand new team of people taking over. And uh, whilst I'm seen as a nuisance nowadays coming in and out of the, the, the firm, the fact to remain that we are moving very rapidly in proving that by having a strong institution, uh, you can um, create that continuity that's required. So my focus is on that and uh, obviously on leadership, on how we can get our leaders to appreciate the responsibility they have at this very point in time. Uh, at no point can I remember in my own uh, professional career have we been challenged to try and get leaders to stand up and face courageously the kind of challenges that we're seeing cropping up, the likes of which we've never seen before, no model to follow, nowhere to go because everybody seems to be caught in the same trap. So let's see how this conversation goes. Okay, Nkusani, may we hear from you please? Kosani, are you there? Don't know if you're on mute. Huh. Um, Kosani, I don't, Teresa, we might want to check on that. So maybe we'll move ahead. Hello. Oh, there you yeah. are. Okay. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much, Linda. My name is Kusani Zamini. I'm very passionate about Africa and the potential it has. Throughout my entire business career, I've been fortunate to work across different parts of the continent. I've worked in mining in Africa, I've worked in financial services, and I'm now involved in retail and pharmaceuticals as well. It's a great pleasure to connect with fellow Africans and friends and supporters of the African continent. And I believe that together we will fight and defeat this pandemic. Yes. So thank you. This is a very hopeful group and they recognize the challenge. And what I'd like to do is have you have a couple of you at least, maybe all of you talk about, you, you've led through crises before, you've already mentioned that. What have been one of the two or one or two key lessons you learned from leading through other crises that you're using now to help you with COVID-19? And what's different about this crisis? So let me actually ask, maybe I'll uh, start with you, Kusani, since I know where you are now, and tell us what, what did you learn in the past that is, and what are you using from that experience and what, uh, what is actually not working or may need to be different as you move forward? Thank you very much, Linda. I, I would say that 
to run a business anywhere in the world is really a challenge in being able to be innovative and facing up to crisis. You've got to, as you sign up to be a leader, you're signing up to crisis management. But what is different and profound about this current crisis is that it is unprecedented. You are in uncharted territory, uncharted waters. Uh, why am I saying that? I'm saying that for a few reasons. Firstly, in a very fundamental and profound way, the current crisis that we are facing just indicates how interconnected we are as humanity. This is a crisis that started in one part of the world and maybe involving one of few people in Wuhan. And when indeed it started, some leaders actually thought it was just a Chinese problem, but it has quickly become a global problem. Some of the crises that we've dealt with, we saw the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, that was unique in the sense that it was a crisis largely confined with the stability and robustness of the financial system at a global level. And what we saw there, which I think is also relevant for now, is the way in which leaders across the world, especially G20 leaders, came together and had a coordinated and joined up global response towards that crisis. And the net result of that, that is that we managed to win and, and defeat the, the financial crisis. I would suggest that that kind of global coordination is required now more than ever before. And secondly, we had the Ebola crisis in 2014. President Obama mobilized the global community around the global response towards uh, Ebola. And we had the AU working in conjunction with President Obama's effort. Again, the lesson from there is that we managed to largely defeat Ebola, although we have one or two cases in DRC today. But that crisis also indicated that collaboration is required. That was a largely regional crisis. This is a global crisis. But notwithstanding that, we're not seeing a global response now. So there are many issues that really connect us as humanity and that requires us, especially from an African perspective, to think locally while also adopting a global perspective in how we deal effectively with this crisis. So in fact, when you look at it, we have to be able to innovate. It's not simply about executing what we already know. I think that this came up already earlier in your introductions, but we're gonna to have to innovate and we're gonna to have to do it in collaboration with each other. We are gonna to have to build these coalitions to get it done. So we'll keep that in mind. And those are lessons you've learned before, but they're even more important now. I don't know, Jay, if you had something to add, what were some of the key lessons, if you have different ones or? Sure, I think um, every crisis uh, is usually unexpected. And, um, and so the reaction is gonna be the key to how leaders uh, really lead. And I think in that case, the key thing is having a measured response, uh, really not knee-jerking. People are looking at you for leadership. And with this pandemic, one of the issues is there is no real answers yet from the standpoint, from the health standpoint. And so as a result, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty and trepidation by many, many people. And so the key there, I think, from a, from a leadership thing is continuing to have good communication. And the communication is absolutely key and it should be inclusive. And when you speak, it should, about, should be about we, the team, not about I, the leader. And I think that's a key thing and obviously bring in that team as much as possible in your communication. You want to be transparent. You want to be open to criticism and, and, um, and comments. So be humble. You don't have all the answers as a leader and you need your team. 
And I think one of the biggest things in this crisis with all of the lockdowns and stay at homes, et cetera, is the ability to be visible to your team. So you're going to have to figure out a way to do that that makes sense uh, from a standpoint of making it personal because you still want to have that interaction as much as possible and make people feel and have empathy for, and, and have you have empathy for what they're going through, but doing it through a obviously online or some other capability. And so the key thing to take away is to instill confidence in you and your team and how you're handling whatever the crisis is that you might be having. And so through that is, you know, developing a team. And I think the most important thing about a team is putting people on it that are the experts that can help you. Don't pay attention to your organization chart. It's about people that make, make a difference and that can really help the capabilities that are needed at that time. So get the right people, get them involved. And then again, communicate, communicate, communicate. It's about us, not about, not about I. So if I think about what both of you are saying thus far, really that the lessons you've learned are, they're applicable here, but guess what? We're going to need new answers. So we really need to be even more deliberate, even though we're moving with speed about who we're consulting, because we need as much data and information as we have or intelligence, but we don't have all of it. There's so much uncertainty here. We're going to have to act with the information, the data we have. We're going to have to learn quickly. And then we're going to have to probably iterate and pivot. And we're going to need to do that not alone, but together with others. Because in fact, it takes not just one organization, but all of us to figure out how to coordinate and build those coalitions necessary. And then as you said, and one thing that we have to talk about is this whole issue of leading when you're not there, leading virtually. And one of the things about in many countries, not just obviously what we see on the continent, not all of your workers actually have access to this technology. And thank goodness for the technology that we can be together. But for some of you, the reality of how you're going to reach and be present for people who don't have access to technologies when they are locked down, that is a reality that is just unbelievably hard and complicated to figure out how you're going to deal with. But that's, that's some, of the, some of the special challenge that some of you might face in some of your organizations. And one thing I just want to say right now, and there is so much variety in the organizations you're leading, but we did have a fair amount of conversation about those of you who are really uh, trying to work with people in rural areas where in fact there are even maybe fewer resources sometimes than there are in the urban areas to get access to, to be able to, to work, to get access to know what's happening and how do we help those people and those populations also be in an inclusive way taken into account as we move forward in our, our leading our organizations. So I think, um, I, I don't know if I can go to a next question unless the other two of you want to add something to this, this first one about the key lessons. I'll move on a bit, but Fred? Yeah, certainly. Um, maybe share a couple of lessons. Uh, so, you know, as an entrepreneur, um, uh, you know, you get used to dealing with lots of crises. You know, you're always dealing with one crisis or another. It's a cash flow crisis today, it's a regulatory crisis tomorrow. Um, so um, I'll share a couple of lessons that I've learned in, the last in this time around. One of the things that I believe is that when you're in crisis, um, first and foremost, you have to recognize what's happening and acknowledge the challenge with honesty. So this is a time when you should not be like Donald Trump. Um, and, uh, you know, otherwise you, you lose trust and credibility. That's the first thing. It's really just being honest about what's going on and, and being authentic. The second thing is that uh, your people need you to decide. Uh, and so this is not a time for waffling or being indecisive because, you know, with crisis leadership, um, you make decisions very quickly. 
um, and that doesn't leave time always princess. But so you have to speed up your decision making processes. Um, now, having fast decision making processes doesn't mean that you don't consult. Them. So, for example, one of the things we've done in the African leadership, you know, we normally take about six to twelve months to do our five year strategic plan. But when you know this coronavirus uh, coronavirus struck, we paused the organization and 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 in two weeks, um, involving everyone in the organization in the process. Um, you know, we strategize and come up with a new, a new strategy for the next five years. And something that only takes us two, uh, eight months, we did it in two weeks. Um, and then the, the third thing that I would say is it's very important to remain calm and not panic because your teams will feed off your energy and, and panic brains don't make good decisions. So this is a time where you are really required to step up and, 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 and show, um, you know, uh, the team, um, you know, that, 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 that sense of calm so that they can at least, um, you know, be guided through, through good decisions. What's interesting about this time, um, you know, that we're in is that um, many of these crises that I've been through as an entrepreneur, um, I've had some role in, in creating, you know, maybe it was a bad decision I made or, you know, I made money, you know, uh, I misjudged the customer demand for something, etc. But in this case, um, many of the, um, the conditions that we're in have, 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 have just sort of been sprung on us. Um, you know, our men were up and we don't have much control over what's going on. So it's very easy to, um, you know, fall into the victim mindset. And so at this time, it's very important that uh, leaders uh, begin to move out of that and, and really think about how, how can they actually, what are the things that they can control? And what are the things that, um, how do you be, become more proactive and, and move out of being just a victim? Because it's very easy to, to, to fall into that mindset right now. So this is just a- Fred, if I could make a, ask you a question and maybe the rest of you might come to some of you to ask this question as well. So one of the leaders, I, as, as Teresa has been saying, I've been interviewing and writing and trying to write some articles about how we lead through this crisis. I have let, written articles about how you lead through other kinds of crises. One in, in Italy when they had a major corruption crisis, for instance, that the leader had to lead through. One of the things I am hearing about this one is it is unprecedented. And actually one of the problems you face as a leader is, as one leader put it, I feel like I'm leading through a fog. And the fog is there is so much uncertainty. We don't really know how this is going to unfold. And, and, and we don't know how long it's gonna last, but we know it's a marathon, but you need to be sprinting along the way. So he said, when you lead through a fog, it, it, that's harder than even leading, if you will, through turbulence, when you can sort of see what's happening. So this issue of how decisive you should be, he said, you know, my instinct is to take charge and try to steer the ship, but that is a little dangerous. In fact, what I need to think about is how do I build the capability of my organization to be agile? Because we're gonna all have to be able to act and learn and move. You can't really plan all that well in this kind of circumstance when you have the fog and there's no autopilot to get me through it. So the particular challenges of the need to be inclusive and make sure you're hearing what you need to hear is very important in this particular crisis is what I'm, I'm hearing from leaders. And I don't know if, uh, if Jay or Polosho, if you have a comment about that, I think you said a little bit about that earlier, that this may require a somewhat different kind of leadership than other kinds of crises. Not that decisive that means you do need to move, you do need to make those decisions, but you also need to understand you actually don't have the answers. And you've got to keep that in mind as you're making decisions and as you're implementing them. Yeah, uh, Linda, one of the things that um, 
as you were speaking, just occurred to me talking about the analogy you use about uh, walking through the fog. Well, the first thing you want to do when you're walking into the fog, even if you're going to lead people, is to make sure you've got people that whose hands you can hold. <laughs> if you all hold their hands are walking together, then at least there's some kind of guidance because somebody at one end of the room might be seeing things that you have, you can't see. So the basic thing I'm talking about is uh, a need for a lot of collaboration, which we talked about. But the reality that I see, especially in a place like Nigeria, and I don't know about other uh, African countries, but probably not too far from it, is that it's not just about us business people. We mustn't forget our politicians and people in civil society who have a totally different mindset. And like I've always shared with people, I would say a corporate executive whose primary aim is to try and get some revenue and get some return on investment and therefore manage all these things compared to a government official whose performance is sometimes evaluated on how much of his budget he has spent, totally different mindset. And we know it does exist. At the same time, we have this pandemic going on in a place like Nigeria and Africa. And the people that are driving the primary decisions are actually politicians working along with the, the people in the health business. Now, we've had this huge debate, certainly in my circle, about the sense of locking people down in a place like Lagos, who can't go out, they earn their, 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 earning, they earn their, their bread, daily bread, going out literally every day, and yet they're stuck at home. And we're beginning to see elements of unrest, and people saying, we just can't do that. And that's an example of sort of doing, taking what is happening in the States or anywhere, lock, stock, and barrel and not appreciating what's actually going on here in this country. So my point is that for one, you've got to really have this collaborative uh, discussion and not just in the corporate boardroom, but across different boardrooms with different people. And we're not doing that. We're not having enough people sitting down. There's always one major group missing in this conversation. Then as far as an individual is concerned, I always say, you know, whenever you are faced with risk, you need courage. Because if you're not going any risky environment, you don't need to be. And so the first thing for a leader is you really got to be courageous. But the thing about that also, and I talked about this with you yesterday, Linda, about the fact that you need, I'll use followers, you need courageous followers or courageous followership. You need people who are around you who are courageous enough to tell you the truth, courageous enough to tell you when you're doing wrong, and hope that you have an organization that allows that to happen. Otherwise, you'll find out at this point in time when it is the time you really need support, you've never designed a system that draws on this support because maybe you've been doing everything on your own. So you've got to begin to change that narrative if it doesn't exist, whereby it's a case of don't carry the burden on your own. Go on, Jay. Oh, sorry. Uh, I was saying, I think one of your, your fog analogy is apropos, and I think it's very uh, indicative of this crisis. And when you think about leading, your aspect, the, the question you raised about decisiveness is, you, and what Fred talked about is you have to be decisive, but you have to be flexible and agile. And you got to use your team, et cetera, all that stuff. But the key thing is make a decision it may be for the day, it may be for a couple of days, but then you've got to revisit it. And if you make a mistake, it's a mistake. Move on, make, get it fixed, figure out what the next thing is. Because what, what we're seeing is this has played out globally. And one of the aspects with it coming into the African continent somewhat later than many other places is we've seen some of the 
some of the uh, mistakes have been made and the right, the right things to be done. But to Felicia's point, you know, you want to be local and make sure you make the right decisions. But I agree that we need a breadth of, of communication across the private sector, across politicians, across society members, et cetera. But you have to do it where you can still get inputs, but act quickly. And then yes, and so for sure, as I mentioned to you, and I know, as I said, we need to go, but for sure we were started by looking at the organization, but it's a false one because you cannot do this alone. It does require that you figure out how you're gonna help in a proactive way, get those various communities to work together. The one thing that I do wanna just ask you all very specifically before we leave this, and I think this is why we have so many people on this call, and one thing is, how do you actually get the data you need to, be, to make the best decisions you can make? So it really does need to be the case that we have these working hypotheses about, we have some, some fundamentals that we know always really is important when you're trying to be a leader, whether it's a crisis or not, but they become even more important now. So if in fact you haven't, people aren't used to telling you speaking truth to power in your organization, you have a more complicated situation than those leaders in the group out there who actually people are used to telling you what they really think. So I think that we wanna acknowledge that. The other piece though is you do wanna figure out how do you get the data to know how to act? And could, could I know, if you could talk a little bit about that for us, Kusani, how do you actually, you know, we know it's imperfect, we know we gotta work through the fog, we're trying to cut through it and get some clarity. Where are you going to know what you need to know to make the most informed decisions you can at the moment, knowing good and well, going to be new information that's evolving and it's going to, you're going to have to, to look again and you're going to have those missteps. Where are you going to get the data you need? Yeah, thank you very much, Linda. I, I think one of the things that we have done deliberately from our organization is to try and unlearn the past in terms of leadership styles, in terms of the hierarchies that are there in the organization. We immediately set up a COVID-19 crisis team that meets on a daily basis and that team is not based on hierarchy. It's based on tapping into the expertise, the experience and energy of colleagues across different parts and levels of the organization. That's what we're doing within the organization. But it's also reaching out to other social partners, working with um, NGOs that we have partnered with to do social good in the past and learning from their experience, from their expertise and identifying opportunities for collaborating with them. We have for example, assisted with setting up drive-through testing stations in Johannesburg, in con working in conjunction with, them, with uh, some of the leading NGOs in South Africa. And we're also looking at um, working with authorities in various ways with the health authorities. We've been uh, supplying healthcare workers in public health facilities with visas that help them in conducting their work. And that is something that we've done. And also, where else do we look? We look at our supply chain. We have, for example, assisted in funding three of our suppliers to repurpose their manufacturing facilities. So it's really being open to disrupting yourself in terms of your, your structures and hierarchies and processes. It's being about innovation. It's also learning as you go and also avoiding the tendency of best being the enemy of good. Uh, what, what do I mean by that? I mean, overanalyzing things until you're 100% correct. If we are 60% sure, of what needs to be done, just run with it and implement it and learn as you go. That's what this current environment is requiring us. The other key point is to, is to overreact and react fast. I mean, that is quite clear from those countries and those parts of the world that are faring much better in this crisis 
that they overreacted, they reacted fast. Our own president in South Africa, President Cyril Ramaphosa, he took very bold and decisive action in declaring a state of national disaster, which was followed by a nationwide lockdown. And there's a lot of work being done in pulling in resources and expertise from different parts of society. And it's really like, as Jay was saying, just, just tapping into the knowledge bases and, and inputs from various players and not assuming that you know it all. So, so one thing, again, I just, you've said a lot, and one piece of the puzzle is, for you, it's about unlearning some of the ways we've operated, perhaps, right? And really Absolutely. not, hierarchy does play a purpose, and I think this came out also in, in a number of other comments. You actually need to, you need people who will make sure that, you know, that see, look at this problem in a different way. You need the seasoned people and the experts, but we also need the people who have kind of the fresh eye, who don't look at it the same way, who will help us not just fall on legacy, but think about what, how do we innovate and deal with what's in front of us now. So one of the things I am seeing is I ask leaders, who is, do, have you created a team to help uh, like a COVID-19 task force or whatever you wanna call it? And I find that many leaders have and others haven't, they've relied on the senior team. It seems that having a dedicated team to really work on this and have the umbrella to think about what needs to be thought of is important and what I see is you obviously want to have the expertise you need but I also see very much in line with what you're saying as one leader said bringing in sort of nascent leaders people who are emergent leaders who are going to have a fresh look and you're and they're not going to say well that's not the way it's done right because doing it the way we've done it may not get us through this one so you've got to be open to that there are going to be those missteps and again, it'll go back to the culture of your organization in the first place. If people aren't used to, they're afraid of that sort of thing, they're going to be even more afraid when they're stressed. So you as a leader need to send very clear signals that you are open to hearing these different points of view and that you need to know that contrarian perspective. And yeah, quote, that might slow us down a little bit, but not really, because we need to be deliberative about what we're doing. So we need to have a marketplace of ideas, work through those ideas and the data we have, make decisions, make sure we, we have some way of some metric or some way of checking on our progress and knowing that this isn't working, time to pivot. You're doing that with your organization and then you have to build out this, these coalitions. I'm gonna ask you each to tell me, if you wouldn't mind in the audience, how are you spending your time now? And how is that different than you were spending it before this crisis came? What, what are you actually focusing your time and attention on? Do you want to start and then we're going to turn to the other panelists. I'm going to ask each of you to give us a quick uh, sort of summary of how are you spending your time? How are you focusing your attention? From my side, if I may start, it's really spending time connecting with our employees, connecting with the teams. We have a COVID-19 task team that meets every day to look at the situation and also pick up learnings from other parts of the world. We're part of a global business being part of Walmart, we also learn from what other Walmart organizations are doing elsewhere in the world. It's also engaging with the authorities, helping the efforts that the government is leading, engaging with our suppliers, also engaging with NGOs and looking at where we can make a difference. And but at the end of it all, what is more important is just the welfare and safety of our employees comes first, because without that, we can't be able to save our customers. So, so let me just ask you very, in a very crude way, what percentage of your time is on internal issues? What percentage on external? Again, a false dichotomy in some ways. 50-50? I, 
I think it's 40% internal and 60% external. Okay, Captain Jay, how about for you? Yeah, I spend, um, I don't have a bit, I'm more on my own at this point in time, um, but I spend time pretty much every day with the Covington crowd, mostly wrapped around what we can do from a COVID response for the clients. Uh, we're doing a lot right now with the AU and the UN around what can happen from data collection, et cetera, policy in, um, in on the African continent. Spend time on, on the boards that I'm on, communicating, as Kusani said, um, with as many people as you can. Uh, I do not, as a board member, try to get involved too much because, again, CEOs are there running those organizations, and it's their their uh, bailiwick to really work that. Um, so, and then pay a lot of attention externally to any information I can gather um, around the around any any data, any facts, et cetera, what we see and what we're learning through this virus, uh, at least here. And then, you know, we're, we're in uh, what we call a pause in New York. And so I'm, I'm ensconced with my grandkids. So I get to spend at least a few hours a day with my grandkids, which I never would have been able to before because I need to take a break. <laughs> so that's and I think one part. of the things we do want to talk about is right. how do you sustain yourself? Because this, we're, we've just started, right? Yep, this, is, exactly. this is going on for a while. So we do need to think about those grandchildren must be very important to you to sustain yourself, keep you going, and be able to be present in the way you need to be when you're having those other conversations. Right. My assumption is you're also really being, you, these are, you're building off of relationships you've already had that are in place. And, and you're making new ones, I'm sure, but just thinking about what your history has been. Yeah. So again, for some of the leaders out there, some of you are, are parts of different networks, et cetera, already that you need to activate, but it takes time right, to build those and activate those and play a role to help shape them. So you really do want to think again a little bit about you know, what's internal, what's external, again, somewhat of a false dichotomy, and where are you really focusing your time and attention, and how much are you leaving for yourself? Because we're, you're going to be doing this, and it's going to get worse before it gets better, potentially. And so thinking about how you spend your time is, is an important one. Uh, any other, other two panelists, any comments about how you're spending your time, time that might be enlightening for the, the audience? I'd like to uh, share with you, and I think this is where I give credit to, uh, to the team uh, in the firm, in the sense that they've designed this very, very, uh, very tight governance structure around how we run the firm being that a lot of it is from home. And I got to give credit that when all this was growing, we actually set up, a, we didn't call it a COVID-19 team, but certainly a business continuity team, whereby they looked at every single aspect of the organization, things about our clients, about our people, about our service delivery, about our physical infrastructure, and the fact that uh, we're going to be working from home. Bear in mind where we are in this part of the world, we have to make a special effort to make sure that all our employees have the facility to be able to work from home. Apart from the internet access, there are issues about power, which are real issues that we face in this part of the world. And the beauty of that is it happens just that, you know, it's like you're back in school. Every morning, everybody's going to check in. And uh, the system is monitoring who checked in at what time for how long and whether they were late or not. Uh, then there's these, uh, these different business unit meetings, uh, the executive committee meetings, the extended leadership meetings. Everybody's talking, you know, and you find all of a sudden people are having clashes with meetings and you, you imagine that they're actually going physically to meetings, but they're all online meetings. So it's a totally new and different world for a lot of the people 
certainly in the firm. The other thing I want to talk about is in terms of data, never have I seen so many webinars going on. You know, there's just this continuous flow of information and data, what to do, what not to do, uh, lessons for today. Uh, lawyers are telling you implications of contracts you have and how you need to manage this in a cognitive environment. People are talking about what happens to jobs that have done halfway that have been stopped. How about contracts that have been issued for a job that has been stopped? How about payments that are not coming through? These are real issues that people are wondering how on earth are we going to deal with this? So um, you're finding that the system itself is responding to this, is anticipating all these challenges and literally trying to give solutions. You know, my wife's a lawyer and all day that's all they're talking about. They're having all these discussions about how to deal and create some kind of a governance and reality around uh, what's going uh, with us today. So, and then again, I've got to say one more thing, that when you look at Nigeria, talking about data, we've got 36 states, 36 governors, uh, different attitude, different concept, different realization. What's happening in Lagos with this high density is totally different from what's happening in another part of the country. And the, the response is different, the attitude is different, and we're still fighting the same battle. We're still fighting this, this pandemic and we really don't know how long or where it's going to hit us. And so the data and the, the ability to communicate and keep an eye on everything, uh, it, it's a big one. It's a big yeah, one. I think that one of the things that you're all telling us is how, and the question is how do you prioritize? <laughs> because you have to figure out how do, you, how do I use myself, my energies, what am I supposed to be focused on? Now we see it's an overwhelming set of, 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 prior, of challenges you have to face. And what ones do we think that the person who is, a, if you will, the leader, the, the top of the organization really needs to be focused on to set the stage for the rest of the organization to be able to move? And you're all in different roles and we can understand why you're spending the time the way you do. But I think that that's one of the questions everyone in the audience needs to ask him or herself. How am I spending my time with whom on what? And am I doing it properly? And am I setting the stage for other people to have to be able to get on with it? And one of the challenges in this particular set situation well, I think, you know, us, is minute by minute, people can be making decisions that are actually life-threatening decisions, particularly for those of you in healthcare, and you are not going to be there. So thinking about what, what do I focus on? How do I set that stage? How do I help people understand how they prioritize as we move through this, this crisis is something that I, as a leader, need to be able to help guide my people on because they're going to be acting and you're not going to be able to be there. So I am finding, and this is not, you don't have to do it this way, I am finding that not having some dedicated group who's focused on this, on COVID, who has some sort of umbrella, you know, that they're looking at the whole in a systemic way, and you as the executive team or whatever, they're reporting to you, or some of you may be on that team, but it's proving to be a little bit much, I would say, for leaders not to have something like that, a group like that to turn to. And being very clear about who should be on that group is something that we're hearing. And I'm just trying to make somewhat more tactical what, what many of you have been saying. What I'd like to do, just because we don't have as much time to talk about everything we want to, I'd like to go back to this issue of communication. Because so many of you, all four of you, have mentioned the importance of it. And one of the things that... And, it, that if you could give some insight, how do you tell the truth here in a way that still gives hope and, and, and is compassionate? So 
some insight about that would be greatly appreciated. And then I want to go back to, as a, in saying this, something that was implicit in, in some comments is that, you know, you, it sounds like all four of you believe you cannot over-prepare for this. You cannot, if you, 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 you cannot over-prepare. You actually need to kind of prepare for the worst case scenario. I think I'm beginning on, on any number of dimensions. It sounds like you're all preparing for the worst case scenario, although we're all gonna do what we can do, if you will, to flatten the curve, to try to avoid that worst case scenario. But it's, if, if I'm hearing this correctly. So if that's not correct, I'd like an answer about that. But when I talk about how you talk about the truth, as well as create hope, I'm assuming that you're all working on and have a scenario in your head that might be quote, worst case, and we don't quite know what that means. So Fred, I'll let you start because you didn't get into the last piece. Um, so I think one, one of the things that um, it's critical to do as a leader is, is, is to um, try and be as honest as possible about what you know or what you think you know and what you, you don't know. Um, you know. And this really brought down to being humble and going back to basics in many ways um, and, uh, and acknowledging that uh, you don't have all the answers. So... Um, but, but there are some trends that, and some, some, some things that um, uh, are, uh, like you say, um, there does seem to be consensus. And what I would call some no regrets moves so that, that, that you can make. For example, it's very clear that there is going to be an you know, economic downturn, right? When you look at all the unemployment numbers are going up across the world, and, uh, and this is obviously to the So in that scenario, um, you and no regrets to ensure that you have as much cash as possible in the bank. Um, and and are you, you know so are you preparing yourself for winter? And, and as you say, planning for um, difficult circumstances and uh, with the hope that uh, you know if things get better than you had planned, you're 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 going to turn well. So I think it's important to. Um, to take that time to also to acknowledge what you don't know and to, to, to do different scenario planning so that you can, you, can, you can have an option A and option B and option C and to remain agile as you learn more so that you can keep adapting your plans um, and to be really honest with your team about um, the facts that you need to gather and to engage the team in helping you to gather. Because I think one of the, so one of the things that we've done is um, we trying to re-strategize we brought the entire organization, all the people in our company, to do research and to, for everyone to go out and learn so that we, you know, we could crowdsource the insights from the whole organization and so that it's not just you know, me as the leader trying to uh, get all the information that we need to. Because when we, when we don't have much time and we have to make decisions, we have to multiply our brains and leverage our teams in intelligence to help us uh, get the insights that we need to make but these are some of the things that we're doing. Yes. Uh, who would like to go next? Just some, I see. I'd like, I'd like to come next. I think one of the things that you need to do is, is really to set the right tone from the top. And that tone has to be ethically strong and very sound and robust. And then secondly, create a feedback loop to allow customers, to allow employees to be able to tell you the bad news. Because you, don't, you can't know it all. And you need that real-time feedback so that you can learn as you go and refine and improve 
and sharpen uh, our responses. And then the third point is really evidence-based, scientifically grounded responses. We are dealing with a, an issue here that requires science and let's defer to the scientists when we need to. And we need to make sure that we proactively draw their insights and make sure that our responses are not just driven by whatever we think is right and yet we are not experts in that field. Tap into those, into those scientists. And also lastly, just you know, use our expert partners. We, we have a mosaic of partners and advisors in the normal course of business. This is the time to reach out in terms of what effective and great leadership looks like in a time of crisis like this. Because this is the time when you have to learn and lead at the same time. Yes, yes. Yeah. there is quite a connection. There always has been between leadership and learning, to be perfectly honest. So the most effective, the, the great leaders are lifelong learners. And we, these crucible experiences on the one hand reveal our character, but also we step up and develop more character. Now, one thing we know about uh, African leaders and I've only spent time seriously in about six or seven African countries, so I can't don't have the experience of all of you. But I have worked on different projects that have involved African leaders from the whole continent. But what I'd like to say is that you have learned about being resilient. You have learned about working with very limited resources. And those are all reserves that you have to help you get through what we're going to all be going through. And some, and we know that those kinds of experiences build character. Now, when people are trying to figure out, as I think has been implied or stated explicitly by some of you, they need to know that they can trust you. Everyone you're interacting with needs to know. And it goes back to their sense of your character, what your intentions are. And also, of course, your competence. And we're saying here, this is an instance when, in fact, you're not as competent as you'd like to be about some things, because this is new, but you're learning as fast as you can. But everything about your character, everything you do in your communications needs to let the people you're working with know that you are about, you care about them. And when I spoke to all four of you, you reminded me of you know, something I wrote about years ago, that with leadership comes rights and privileges. But also, what is more important to keep in mind is you have duties and obligations. And in all of your responses, we are picking up on, I think, the audience that you are very aware of your duty and your obligation to not only your organization, and that means the suppliers as well as the people working at your, the, the, all the different parties that are, are, are dependent on you to do a good job, but you're very connected to your communities and your countries. So I want to make sure we spend some more time on that piece of the puzzle as we think about communication or anything else as well. It's come up already, but I just want to make sure that I, I send you a signal that you feel free to talk about the special challenges. And I think, Lucio, you've done some of that with us and your whole effort has been about building institutions to prepare us for, for this, kind of this kind of opportunity and challenge, as they say. And in fact, to be real, we all know that these pandemics are possibilities. I mean, I do a lot of work in public health. I, I became a business professor because I'm interested in economic development. So I have always paid a fair amount of attention to public health and vaccines, for instance. So we have known, and for sure, there's another conversation we'll have later about what are the lessons learned that tell us what we need to do to change our institutions and our organizations, prepare for the next pandemic, because we are so interdependent. But for now, let's turn and talk a little bit more about the, the how, what you really are, can do. And I think, Isana, you've shared some of what you're doing with the community, with the government, with other partners that you have to try to address the needs of the people and the communities that you serve. 
You've done some of that. I don't know if you want to say more about it, but I'd like to make sure we hear from the others about that topic. What are you doing with regard to your own communities? And again, Kasani, I don't mean for you to be repetitive, but if there's something else you'd like to add about that, and, and I, I, we'd like to hear it now, if you wouldn't mind. I think taking it further and looking at it from an African perspective, I'd like to mention maybe three things. Like we have just said, Linda, we knew this crisis was always going to happen. And one, what, one thing we must also be sure of is there will be another crisis after this. What then must Africa do? I think one of the, the first challenges and areas of focus is just to make sure that we've got good pandemic preparedness across Africa. Because these pandemics are just so big and so complex for one country fighting them alone to successfully defeat them. There's not even one country in Africa, and they are saying the world that can hope to win against this pandemic fighting alone. So there is a need for joined up action across Africa and across sectors within Africa, business, government, civil society, and labor working together to really have a pandemic preparedness plans that are robust and effective because we, we will win against this pandemic, but the next one will come. The second point, which relates to our healthcare systems, is really building and maintaining the resilience and capacity of Africa's healthcare systems and infrastructure. One of the challenges that we face is that if this crisis is not stopped, and if the spread of the infection is not contained in Africa, all our healthcare systems across Africa will be overwhelmed. They will not be able to cope. We don't have the right number of beds to, in our hospitals. We don't have the right number of hospitals to start with. We don't have the right number of ventilators and respirators, the masks that will be required, the personal protective equipment. So focusing on really building and maintaining the resilience and capacity of Africa's healthcare systems is one of the areas of focus going forward. And thirdly, in South Africa, we have set through the leadership of, our, of President Ramaphosa, we've set up a solidarity fund. There is a case to be made for an African solidarity fund that can tap into resources within Africa, outside of Africa, to again mobilize the financial resources, the intellectual resources, the expertise that is required to again position the continent to successfully win and fight against such pandemics. And fourthly, which is my last point, is really to use this crisis as a moment and as an opportunity to transform and restructure African economies so that in the medium to long term, we transform Africa to be a first world continent that does not depend on the generosity of Western powers or Asian powers to deal with crises such as this. If we had a strong private sector, if we had flagship global companies in Africa that are strong globally, we will be able to deal with this crisis quite comfortably on, on our own. So in fact, as you're making, taking the actions now that are urgent, you're doing it in a context of this broader view and vision you have of what needs to happen going forward. So I think one of the things that, and we need leaders like you, and you're, I'm sure you're keeping track of these things, and we need to make sure and come back and take care of them. There are weaknesses that can be addressed, but it's really about having an independent, for lack of a better word of putting, way of putting it, Africa that can respond to this the way they need to. And in fact, you are probably going to be responding to it anyway, if you will, mostly with your own resources, your own energies, your own, your own considerable talents as a continent. So I want to hear from the others about this who would like to go next. I'm yes. watching. Uh, I'd like to share with you. Um, certainly there was a huge, uh, a great experience that we had 
uh, during the Ebola crisis. I mean, without a doubt, Nigeria did very well, you know, however it happened, especially Lagos State, in, in managing what could have been a very, very terrible situation, uh, health risk for, for the whole country. Uh, but the important thing about that is that from that experience, since Lagos State heard about this outbreak way back in December, the flags went up and they just said, look, you know what? Let's begin to prepare. And they did. They actually sat down and started to monitor what was going on. They were paying attention to what was going on to the extent that the very first, hopefully the first uh, index case that came into the country was identified and all the various links uh, found out and put under quarantine and managed and so on. But it was just the fact that Lagos State had a system in place based on the experience they had before. So really weren't caught unawares because Lagos has always been the entry point because of our, of our airport. But the problem after that is just the capacity of the country itself to deal with this pandemic. And that's why we're hoping that as of now, it's still sort of maintained or retained. We don't know what's going to happen. Everybody's waiting for this explosion that's not hasn't happened yet and we hope it doesn't because yes. if it does really we would have a problem with, with um with capacity but moving on again to another issue is that it just dawned on me that you know for the for other parts of the world you you find that there's this full financial aid to organizations and i was just amazed when you think that in england the likes of virgin and huge corporates are getting you know state funding uh, if you look in this environment we have always, certainly in this part of the world, have always had to survive on our own. There is no sort of uh, easy, cheap credit system. So organizations, you're literally caught with the amount of money you have in the bank today. Beyond that, you're stuck. And the ability to get more funds becomes a huge challenge. And these are the kind of conversations leaders have to have and say, how on earth am I going to manage my organization when all of a sudden I wake up one morning, somebody turns the taps off, and my receivables are there, my intended sales are there, and I'm sitting here with whatever it is I have in the bank. Others don't want to spend money because they want to conserve their cash. You too don't want to spend your money because you want to conserve your cash. So all of a sudden there's this contraction that's going on and you're saying, okay, what on earth do we do? And these are the kinds of decisions uh, you know, leaders have to take in saying how they manage things and communicate uh, with their people. And the last point that was made is about this issue about uh, uh, the opportunity for transformation. And that is not a choice. It is just going to be no alternative because already the rest of the world is counting down. It's to your tents or Israel. Everybody's looking after their own, own little bit and people are restricting exports. They're saying, let's conserve what we have. And the countries like ours that's expecting to survive uh, in terms of imports that are coming in for us to drive our, our commerce and industry and feed the nation, all that is being challenged. But the good news is that it's going to force everybody to wake up and appreciate the fact that, you know what, the holiday is over, we're going to suffer a bit if that's what it's going to mean, but we're all going to have to start to get going. I'll give you a quick example. A bunch of young people have started making face masks. And these are not just face masks that are fancy. They are face masks that are tested and known to actually do the job. And that's a huge proliferation. All of a sudden, the tailoring business has gone haywire. But that is the scale at which we operate in this continent. And it is not just about the big corporates, but what the SMEs are doing and how they're keeping themselves employed. 
And this is how we're going to build that capability going forward in terms of the kind of transformation we're looking forward to. Yeah. So as I said, the, the talent, the resilience, the limited resources, these are, all, these are circumstances in which you've lived through, you live through all the time. These are different times, unprecedented, but there are, those are resources you have to build on. But not to, again, so when you're giving, but just to make it, to tie it back to the message you're giving your people, because we talked about how do you communicate both that hope and the truth as you work through what's going on here. And for sure, one of the, the concerns that we heard from the audience is how do I deal with the economic issues that we're going to be facing? And we've heard, think about cash flow. Your budgets, your business plan is probably going to, it might be out the window a bit, but you still need, what do you need to be monitoring? Now, that's going to be the topic of the next discussion, the next session. So we haven't spent a lot of time on it, but we know it's there. So if I could, I'm now going to change gears on you a little bit. So what are the key trade-offs that you are facing now and you anticipate facing as you go through this crisis? Because we need to be honest to ourselves about what those trade-offs are going to be. We may not have the answers. I'm not asking you to give us those, but what are the key trade-offs you would tell leaders to, to have, keep in mind, and maybe they're all too aware of them, that they're going to have to be making? And again, going back to prioritizing and how they're spending their time and energy, but what do you anticipate? Ajay, given that you're talking to lots of companies who are asking for a consultation on these matters, what would you say? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the key things in any crisis as a leader is uh, two, two, two key ones. One is paying attention to your organization, not overloading them with things that they don't need to do. Get them structured around what, what they can impact. Um, uh, have your task forces, et cetera, but don't overload, overload these people as much as possible. The other key thing is to continue a dual focus. One is the immediate needs that are happening at all times. We talked a lot about that, but if you don't, but otherwise it's almost like being on a hamster wheel where you're continuing to basically try to solve all the problems of this hour or today and not paying attention to the long term. So you have to be able to basically go in and out from that standpoint of thinking about the long-term as well as the very short-term issues that are happening. So to that point, no one knows how things are gonna come out of this. What is, what is the way to come, come back into norm, the new normal, so to speak, which has been overused in the last few weeks. But fundamentally, what is gonna happen with your business? How do you plan for it? Where do you put the efforts? How do you bring employees back if they've been not working? How do you uh, change your product lines? How do you handle your customer relations, your supplier relations from the standpoint of getting paid or paying people? But paying and having a group focused on that as well because you have, specifically in this crisis, as we talked about the fog, you're different things going just to get to tomorrow. And you want to get away from that. It's similar to, I was in the financial business back in financial services during the, the crisis there. Will the market open, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you gotta focus on today, but on the long term. So I think that balance is key. And making sure that you're sticking to your principles uh, of your company or your foundation or whatever it might be, that you're not into areas that you feel that you can help quickly, but you may not have any expertise. You want to help, but you don't have any expertise. And I think it's a, it's a key thing from a standpoint of, of uh, leading an organization and making sure again that you've 
you're not you're not only handling the turbulence as you put it, but also directing your way through the fog. Yeah, and so so getting that ba- I don't know if it's a ba- balance right or understanding how how right. to do that is an important an important piece of the puzzle because you do need to maintain the current business and deal with future. How let me ask I, I, I'm now I'm looking at the time and I want to ask you all another question if I could and I apologize if I for for changing uh changing the, the questions that I'm asking, but I'm trying to respond to what you're saying. How are you coping with the fact that people are, and maybe it hasn't happened as much there yet, and hopefully it won't happen as much. But, you know, Teresa reminded us, and we took a moment out to think about the people who have died or are dying who are very sick in their families. Can you share with us a bit about how you're coping with what I, I wrote up once about the burdens of leadership, and I mean, this is a privilege and it's a burden, but you do carry the emotions, and you do, as, as you said, of, of the negativity of this situation. People, you, you have to. That's a part of, of being a leader. How are you coping with that? And I must confess, I'm being a little selfish. Uh, my husband's actually a physician, and I have not slept. He's, he's sort of quarantined in our house. And there's this constant anxiety <laughs> that I'm experiencing. So I can't imagine all of you being leaders with organizations. How are you, how are you coping with that yourselves? And what advice would you give to the audience on that? Because it's, it only, from what I can tell in the U.S., it only gets worse what you have to kind of, have to kind of manage. It's actually a serious and real issue. One way in which one feels it is the nature of the conversations we're having before we start any conversation with any colleague, it's no longer, hi, how are you? It's like, how is your family? How are you keeping? Are you safe? Are you well? That's the start of the conversation before you even talk about business because that is serious and that is very, very real. And also like now when we, most people, when they exchange emails, it's no longer like best regards, kind regards. It's like stay safe and well. It just shows the point you are making that this is really, being felt in a real and deeper way. And it's there, it's a reality that we have to be part of. And I think this is the time when people before profits, we're talking about trade-offs earlier on, is something that's not just a slogan, but that's being lived in our lived reality on a day-to-day basis. This is also the time when social solidarity is prevailing over individual self-interest. We've seen a lot of executives and leaders in South Africa donating a portion of their own personal remuneration to the solidarity fund that is going out there to go and help the homeless people, people in informal settlements, the most vulnerable amongst ourselves in society. And it's, a thing, it's an issue that also imposes a responsibility on every leader to think every day about, are all the employees safe? And that's the conversation you're having. So that's how you have to deal with it. Is everyone safe? Is everyone's family safe? And how can we help and support those that get infected and affected in the process? Yes. Fred? Yeah, so I mean, this is um, one of those moments where um, I think our our, our characters as as leaders really demonstrated. Um, I think at this time, the measure of a leader is not going to be about how much profit they made or how much fame they got, but it's really about whether when it counted were you there for your people? You know, did you use your resources widely? Did you influence change in your in your society? And you know, as Kuseni said, your decisions are no longer about profit or loss. It's about life and death. 
uh, and the consequences of our leadership at this moment are much, much greater than they've ever been. So it's really about, you know, do you either step up and reveal stand from this moment or do you squander an opportunity to really make a difference? Um, so what do you, Ron, how do you act on that courage? Maybe, I mean, I, I realize, how do we help all of us do that? One of the reasons we're having this conversation, as Teresa said, is it's comforting, frankly, right? It's comforting. We're getting guidance. But, but how do you personally, as a leader, make sure you don't get burned out? I'm sure all of you, because I, I, I can tell that you're all high achievers. And I mean, the burnout has been with you your whole lives. So yeah. I've heard about the grandchildren. We heard about the grandchildren. I think I'm working harder than I've ever worked, frankly. It's, it's odd to me that this could be that way. But how, what are you doing to keep yourself moving and inspired in the way you need to be to, to bring that to people and be present? You have to recognize you, 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 you can't do this by yourself. So, you know, sharing the burden of leadership with your team, you know, um, or others, others in your senior team, but even people maybe junior in the, in the organization who maybe in this moment could step up and contribute something uniquely. So it's really about spotting the talents of the people that are around you and seeing who can contribute uh, in, in, in different ways. I also think as leaders, it, it's, it's important to practice self-care um, because you, know, you need to have staying power through this, this crisis. So taking the time you know, to step away from the pressure cooker every now and then, whether it's to just to sleep or to um, exercise or to relax or spend time with family and loved ones, things that can allow you to relax a bit because um, some critical decisions that need to be made require you to be in a state of mind that is not in a panic zone. And so having that, you know, so it, it might seem counterintuitive, taking the time to take care of yourself, but that might actually be some of the most important contributions that you could make in this moment because your con the consequences of your decisions are so grave that if you're making bad decisions at this moment because you haven't been taking care of yourself, the, the impact could be, could be much worse. Yeah, I was talking with one leader who has, uh, you know, a colleague who's like his sounding board. And apparently they have very different styles, temperaments, et cetera, but they always touch base. And he was talking about how they had to learn how to really have those same kinds of conversations, conversations virtually. That they, they're, they're not allowed, and in fact, this may be something that just, just a practical piece of advice is it turns out in some companies what we're seeing, and maybe in all of yours, there's actually a, they've put in place a plan, going back to governance, of people who can never be in the same room together, or in, the, in any way. This is, a, this is a, a, in a business that's essential, so they still are going, if you will, to work. And they have a plan. These, they went through all the talent and said, we can never have these two people in the same room together. We can't afford for the, both of them to be sick if we look at what the critical roles are. So we see that kind of planning happening because, in fact, you know, people are getting sick and people can get sick. So having said that, what, what you described is there was a person who I always had this casual conversation with, if you know, at the end of the day or whatever, but we can't do that anymore. But they've decided they have to actually recreate it you know, over Zoom or whatever, whatever capability they're doing because it actually was, it, they needed even more now than they needed before. Plus they need to be sounding boards for each other because again, you don't want to be just talking to your friends. You want to get different perspectives on whatever it is you're looking at. And that's been very important, both as a source of comfort, but also just as a check. Someone, you know, he deeply trusts and that you deeply knows him. And so that they can, they can actually have very honest conversations where they're vulnerable with each other about what's going on. So I don't know, you don't all have to reveal whether you do that or not, but I am finding that keeping yourself going and getting through this so that you do have the presence and you can 
tell the truth as well as provide that comfort, compassion, and hope does require taking care of yourself. So figuring out how you're going to do that, I think, is, is an important leadership responsibility you have because we're counting on you to be able to take us through however long this it's going to take us to get through this fog. I'm looking at the time, and I need to turn to Teresa to see if, Teresa, where are we? And what are you expecting? I want to make sure we're, we, we follow, we have, we're, we've been collecting questions, I believe. Do we want to turn to those as you're getting ready for that? As I ask the panelists, is there something else any of you want to say right now? I know I haven't, I hope we've all, we've all been able to hear and get some wisdom from everyone here. There's lots more we could learn from them. Any last comment while Teresa goes through the questions and figures out uh, what, what she might like us to ask? Hey, one comment to me is just that I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about the challenges of this moment and how, you know, we need to prepare for a difficult moment and, uh, and, and, and plan for crisis and so forth. I think, though, that it would be remiss to also not talk about the opportunities that this moment Because, um, you know, one of the things I always say is that Constraints drives innovation. Yes. We have a lot of constraints right now. We're being forced to work in different ways. We're being forced to, you know, engage with each other in different ways. And so as a leader, while we need to, you know, deal with a crisis at the moment, we also need to be looking forward ahead of what's going to happen after the crisis and thinking through what the world will look like and how do we reposition our organizations and our societies to come out even stronger. Um, and as a continent especially, I think there's some really exciting possibilities that um, this, this crisis could bring for the continent. You know, for example, um, I think a lot of governments are going to now realize the need to invest in broadband infrastructure, um, to allow, um, you know, more, more people to be able to connect, you know, and, and, and what, what is that going to do for the continent? And how do people prepare for that kind of thing? You know, there's going to probably be uh, a, a greater emphasis on, on, on our health systems you know and so I think that there's there's a lot that we need to start thinking about all the innovation that we can you know is this the era that we are finally going to see Africa go to e-commerce era and you know we're going to create our own African Alibabas right so I think it's we need to be to be balancing think about think about that really long building out that infrastructure that we need going forward I think we started a little bit of that conversation earlier and that this is the sense in which I can't believe I use the word opportunity but because of how you all have been talking about it that's what I hear you are a very hopeful group and you also uh, uh, and that's one of the reasons why it's very humbling to be with this panel because I, I I have to you make me have to sit up straight and to think really about the impact I can have as an individual leader broadly in a different way. And so we all need to be keeping track of, I'm an academic, so I write, so I do take notes all the time, but you all need to be, you know these things, but I'd ask you all to keep journals. It'd be lovely to come back to you and think about what's in your journal about what needs to happen in the future and how do we balance. And you're very aware of what we're doing in the short term, we do it in a way that we're building capabilities for the long term. That's what I've heard from all four of you as we've talked about this, because some of this are sort of basics that we need to get right. So I wanted to turn to, to uh, Teresa to see what the, the questions we have. Thank you very much, Linda. And thank you, Kalusho, Husseini, Jay, Fred. Um, you know, this call has been a little bit disjointed, which we apologize for. We've had to put this together very quickly. And for those of you who are on at the very beginning, we had um, Dr. Yao. Um, we were meant to go into uh, Q&A right now, but if you don't mind, Dr. Yao, who is leading the um, effort for the World Health Organization, 
He is the chief of the emergency response for the continent of Africa on the front line of the very pandemic that we brings us all together here. Um, if you don't mind, we're going to have about a 10 to 15 minute briefing with Dr. Gao, and then we'll wrap up with questions. But I think it's important that we hear from him. Okay, thank you very much for this uh, opportunity and a very interesting discussion. I uh, um, managed to connect later on. Um, one of the critical points is uh, um, mainly preparedness and how we deal with uh, this uh, uh, pandemic uh, is um, unprecedented. Uh, event uh, compared in my uh, uh, almost 20 years experience and um, it's uh, really a challenge for many countries where support cannot be uh, centered in a single country but all the countries including those helping um, are also affected. Uh, the next slide the next slide is uh, showing the overall situation uh, now. Um, in fact, our region covers sub-Saharan plus Algeria, but uh, I compile also information for the other countries that, is in, that are in the East Mediterranean office. So we have roughly um, uh, about uh, 16,000 cases uh, right now with uh, uh, more than uh, um, uh, also um, uh, in terms of, uh, of, of death, uh, cumulative death, uh, more than uh, seven, uh, 900 uh, uh, deaths uh, right now. And this uh, brings it to, uh, if we combine uh, all the countries, uh, close to 5% uh, of people dying uh, from this uh, disease. And so far, we have uh, 52 countries in the all African countries that have been um, um, reporting uh, cases. Um, if you look at this uh, graph uh, on your right, so you can see that uh, we have uh, um, roughly an average between um, uh, 400 and uh, 500 cases per, uh, per day. And some of the uh, compilation take uh, uh, 24 hours to reach us, but this is the overall average. Uh, next slide. The next slide is showing uh, actually in Africa the six main hotspots that we have. Uh, it's Algeria, where uh, the lethality is quite high, uh, 15%. Uh, we have uh, Cote d'Ivoire in West Africa, Ghana, uh, Cameroon, uh, and uh, Niger, and South Africa. Uh, the six countries account for 50% of for all the cases uh, in uh, the African uh, uh, continent and about 72% uh, of the deaths. Um, this is uh, uh, rather in the 47 countries that we are covering. Uh, if we look at the next slide, uh, it's um, um, showing uh, two maps. On your left, uh, these are number of cases. And uh, the, uh, the orange color, darker it is, is uh, where we have uh, more uh, cases. So uh, you can easily see on the top, uh, Algeria, and down there, we still have South Africa. And then we have the West African countries, and in Central Africa, we have Cameroon and uh, uh, DRC, uh, a bit uh, um, in Kenya, where the uh, number of cases is increasing. Oh. On your right, uh, in brown, um, the darker uh, the color is, uh, is, the, is uh, of the highest uh, case fatality rate in terms of mortality. So it's where um, we had more casualty among the number of cases. The next slide, uh, in fact, we group our countries into three. We have three colors. The green ones are the ones that we have uh, 
uh, we still have sporadic uh, cases. Is that single cases, uh, and uh, most of the cases are related to, to this one. In orange is where you have a bigger clusters, and in red is where you have a community uh, transmission. Um, this is the case in Algeria. Uh, and uh, also in South Africa. In the other region, we have also Egypt, uh, Morocco, and, uh, and Tunisia. And this uh, actually shows us that uh, there still has, uh, is a possibility for containment. We have uh, 14 countries that are between 20 and 100, and uh, we have uh, uh, 15 countries that have less than 20. So in these countries, if we strengthen uh, the response, and if we manage where in any single cases we can reach a containment, is still possible, but we need some to scale up, and probably uh, the containment, uh, confinement uh, decision ongoing is probably helping, but uh, it needs to be strengthened. I will come back to it later on. The next slide is uh, showing uh, uh, measures undertaken by countries. Um, on your left is uh, the uh, border closures, uh, and uh, uh, 35 countries in uh, the sub-Saharan African countries uh, have set up a measure that is uh, um, not allowing um, passengers uh, coming in the country. And uh, among them, 20 of them, uh, 22 are allowing cargo and humanitarian. This is very important for support to countries. Uh, nine of them are implementing refusal of entry of passengers and three um, um, proposing 14 days quarantine upon arrival. On your right, uh, the map is showing uh, uh, confinement. Uh, so uh, measures have been taken. Green, uh, nothing major yet. Uh, this is how, as of uh, 6th of April. So maybe situation has evolved the last uh, days. But when we were doing this compilation, uh, 23 countries are, were implementing the lockdown um, to 12 of them, uh, the national lockdown. And in addition, uh, some uh, eight countries were adding also curfew. Uh, so this is a total lockdown. And uh, as we are talking about uh, uh, leadership and business, this can uh, really affect the, uh, the, 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 the environment, uh, business environment. The next slide uh, is about uh, confinement as a public health measure for uh, uh, COVID. Um, these measures have, uh, there is challenges to implement them in Africa. We have proud households. Uh, we have also lack of access in many places to water and soap uh, in regard to uh, these uh, preventive measures that we advise to wash your hands, but with what if I don't have water and soap? Uh, many people also uh, have uh, uh, a daily survival trend and uh, without having access uh, to the business, it's very difficult for them. And access to basic services, including health, is a challenge. And in some settings, uh, we have uh, also insecurity that increase uh, uh, with uh, also the confinement. And we have also rumors and fake news that is difficult to fight uh, compared to many, many years ago where uh, with, with the social media was not uh, widespread. Uh, uh, However, we have some assets in Africa. The population is still young, even if uh, it needs to be balanced with uh, some of the prevailing uh, disease uh, like uh, HIV, AIDS, uh, TB, and so on. But uh, um, time being, 
Uh, most of the deaths are above 60 um, uh, when we look at the statistic. Uh, social uh, network um, can also be leveraged, um, mainly uh, community leaders uh, can be leveraged. Now, on, the, on your right uh, is also uh, what we need to look at in when we talk about confinement. Uh, it should be evidence-based, and it's good that uh, some of the countries limited uh, into uh, the, uh, around the hotspot. It's critical. Uh, it can also help at least a part of the country to continue activities if we don't have uh, cases. But this requires um, to, uh, to collect evidence and to analyze. Uh, you need to have a clear objective. Uh, the overall is to flatten the curve, but you can only flatten the curve if during the confinement you have a measure to uh, detect cases, to confirm and isolate, at the same time increase your capacity so that at least the demand remains below uh, the, um, the availability of services. Um, critical public health interventions uh, like uh, community-based surveillance, active case search uh, is happening in South Africa, but it, it, um, uh, in many countries it needs to be done robustly. And also uh, the, um, we need also to start preparing the next phase while doing the confinement. How can we increase treatment capacity? How can we preposition for temporary treatment structures? And uh, of course, continue risk communication, social support, and also uh, in the African setting, enabling intervention to ensure that we have a health service continuity uh, we ha uh, we, that can be done with appropriate triage uh, that bring on one side the COVID and the other side the normal service. Uh, supportive humanitarian intervention, including uh, water sanitation, and uh, other items uh, and food uh, distribution is critical if we want to have a real impact of this confinement. The last um, um, slide. The last slide, as uh, we are with uh, many partners, is to give you an idea of where private sector can contribute. Uh, on your left, uh, the left column, you have the response areas, uh, coordination that uh, uh, needs uh, um, operation centers, that need uh, uh, IT technologies. Um, it's also in the web, um, uh, you coordinate uh, the um, enabling intervention like food distribution for vulnerable people or, or water and sanitation interventions. Uh, so you can give an idea of areas where private sector can step in uh, on surveillance also uh, the need of uh, to, um, different uh, equipment including IT equipment um, uh, when you have a, num a huge number of contacts it's difficult to do it manually so it's where we introduce the technical the technology uh, for electronic contact tracing and in all of these uh, private sector can step in uh, infection prevention and control uh, hand washing uh, gloves, uh, um, masks, uh, all these items uh, is also uh, uh, important to protect health workers and also to reduce transmission, case management, uh, risk communication, lab. So for each of the response areas, uh, there is a few suggestions uh, in which a private sector can step. Uh, so it's, uh, I will stop here and uh, I will remain uh, online if there is a few questions. So uh, situation is... Um, uh, with the African situation, uh, the number of cases is increasing, uh, but uh, maybe thanks to 
the containment measures, we have a kind of uh, stabilization between 400 and 500 uh, cases per day, uh, but we still have a chance for confinement if uh, we combine all the different, uh, um, uh, I'd say chance for containment if we combine all the different interventions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Yao. We appreciate you taking the time. Um, I'll ask you one question, then I'm going to turn it back over to Linda and we'll, we'll, um, we have a couple of questions on the business side, but just stealing, staying for a moment with the public health side of this, you know, one of the direct questions that came up among the panelists as we were preparing for this webinar was, how do you make a decision um, as to whether you socially you social distance for people who work, for example, in markets. You, you, you know, very clearly put out what some of the challenges are for Africa. But when people have to make a decision, for example, in the informal sector, where we'll be having a session on that in two weeks, but in the informal sector where people might have to decide between eating, um, they go out to earn money day to day. How do you think about that from a public health perspective that it's possible that the decisions being made around social distancing might cause harm in and of themselves. Oh, thank you very much. Um, in the African setting, so we need uh, um, to uh, analyze the situations case by case, and uh, it's why uh, around the uh, coordination mechanism, you should have a cell that analyzes and customizes uh, this uh, intervention. Uh, but if we take the marketplace, uh, for example, uh, what I, could, I can advise is to ensure that we have uh, um, a hand washing uh, mechanism or system put in place in this market. And because it's a crowded environment, uh, to uh, make available uh, masks that will at least help people uh, to uh, pre prevent those who are sick to contaminate others. So in this crowd, environments that is the, the market if uh, masks can be made available. So this uh, uh, um, it should involve also the, the, the response uh, coordination. If they find this, solution, uh, this uh, situation and uh, it's difficult sometimes to stop uh, this business, it's to them to take the appropriate measure. So um, this advice is different from one setting to another and certainly uh, it's, it's required different intervention in Africa. It's why we are encouraging in each of the African countries for researchers to be uh, together. WHO has a global recommendation. We try to customize it a bit at the uh, African regional office, but each country have also many specificities uh, that need to be analyzed uh, based on the risk analysis, while how people get contaminated and what could be the risk factors. And based on that, the appropriate measure can be redesigned to fit the context. Thank you very much. And please stay on the line with us. All right, our first question that we're gonna throw out to the business panelists um, comes from Tandi Orlean. Tandi is an executive in South Africa, also serves on the board of um, British Petroleum South Africa and is an investor. She asks, um, African countries presently have very low statistics, both of infections and fatalities, as Dr. Yao has demonstrated relative to our population. Um, therefore, we're in an anticipatory phase, and this is already impacting the economies. Given that this is the case, how do you as panelists, what would you say to businesses to encourage them to stay the course? We need to have a long-term view 
and how do you encourage others to stay the course when the short term is so unclear? Yes, this is the question of can you, you know, you might be criticized for having overprepared, but that is the risk, that is the prudent risk given the way we've seen this disease operate in other parts of the world, kind of exponential growth. But how are you all dealing with that? Who would like to take that question? I'd like to go, this is Tandi, this is Kuseni, and thank you for your very informative and insightful question. I think what I would say is that business have got to stay the course. They must understand that this is the time to make a sacrifice. This is a time not to be short term, but to really put people before profits. Uh, where, where possible, we need to be able to survive or, or rather incur the pain that is required for us to survive through this crisis. Government has to come to the party by you know, giving all sorts of subsidies and support measures that we've had businesses to come to the party by looking after employees, uh, taking care of liquidity of companies, and just making sure that you don't take short-term decisions that throw people out of the employment world into unemployment. And it's really for big companies to also look at smaller suppliers, looking at how to support them to survive through this period, even if it's about prepaying in some instances, paying them on time, which is the most basic an important thing to keep small and medium enterprises uh, going. This is really a time for selfless leadership by businesses and executives across all sectors and across the African continent. Thank you. Anybody else want to contribute to that response? I just want to say that um, I think one of the major challenges we have now is to be very realistic, social unrest as a result of people being locked down. Um, you know, I keep going back to this simply because we know, certainly, especially in Nigeria, and I do know in other parts of Africa, there is this huge resistance that's building up with people that are normally very buoyant and entrepreneurial, and they're out there doing their stuff every single day. Now they're locked up at home, and uh, they, they say they earn every day, so how do they survive? And there, there's been this, you know, elements of social unrest, and, and uh, some people have taken advantage of it. Um, and we just got to try and find a way to work with government, to work with society itself, to see how we can deal with that particular resistance that's, that's turning up, uh, rather than ignore it. Uh, it goes beyond supporting the, the old and the women and those that really can't survive, and really talking about able-bodied young men who are rather frustrated, they've been frustrated before, but the situation is actually worse now. So I think there's a certain element of responsibility that we have, again, working with government, not making it a business uh, corporate uh, issue only, but getting as many people around the table and working out how it is that we can get the messaging right and, and deal with the issues. I don't know the answer, but we need to have a discussion on it. Great, thank you. Okay, we have a question coming in from Chukwu. Guadialo, um, who is in Nigeria. He is a senior technical executive at Chevron. His question is, the panel has already pointed out um, that we need to emphasize what happens after the pandemic. As leaders, we need to be thinking about what changes are likely to occur after the pandemic. And in particular, what are the changes that you think are most likely to occur that are irreversible? What is happening now that we won't be able to stop? And we've talked a little bit about the digital on this panel, but what else do you think is irreversible? Uh, 
sometimes crises have a way of accelerating things that we've been dragging our feet on for a while. Um, that should have happened a long time ago. And, and I think that um, this moment is, is, is hopefully revealing some of those. I think one of the things that will happen is, um, uh, you know, something like online education. One of the ways which Africa should really be leapfrogging the world uh, and catching up as we de develop human capital. Regulators have resisted, um, you know, the, the, the spread of this as much as we could. So I think that, you know, societies, families will demand this more and that pressure I think will, will, will allow, um, you know, that to, to accelerate more. Something like e-medicine probably will also, you know, be, be, be a, a long-term trend. Uh, as I mentioned, um, the move towards e-commerce. Um, I think that there are certain opportunities that, um, you know, one of the things that I think could be an exciting opportunity for Africa is that um, this could become a better, it, it could be an, a better environment for small businesses to thrive. Because today, one of the main challenges, I think about my own experience as an entrepreneur, in trying to grow business across Africa, um, issues with things like work permits that governments, uh, you know, are, have been, you know, preventing us from getting the talent that we need in countries. Now that you can work remotely, maybe you can hire people in Africa or from other parts of the world without needing to worry about work permits for them. You know, and uh, another you know opportunity and long-term thing that could happen is, um, I, global organizations, I think, will be much more open to hiring teams from all around the world, including Africa. So as we think about unemployment challenges that we're gonna see in Africa, when you look, think about how do we create employment for our people, uh, there's a great opportunity to prepare a virtual workforce and work in Europe, you know, USA and everything, but, but without migrating and having to deal with issues of Libya and, and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, work permits, et cetera. So I think that these are some of the, um, the long-term uh, changes that uh, I, I believe will, will, will happen and that we can be preparing ourselves continents to be able to capture if we think strategically. Great. Yeah, if I may come in on that question, I think there will be a total reset on how we live our lives, how we work, how we learn, and indeed how we, we worship. And I, I think companies will discover the importance or the efficacy of uh, working from home, and we're starting to see that. There will be aspects of that, that will be part of the new normal that will continue. But two things that I hope will happen and I wish happen, I wish that we emerge with a global perspective on the importance of having efficient and effective healthcare systems around the world. I hope that there will be a paradigm shift to realize that a weak healthcare system in any part of the world may be a threat to a strong healthcare system in another part of the world, given how connected we are. And secondly, I also think that there will be aspects of deglobalization, especially of supply chains. We see the jostling for position for personal protective equipment, for masks, for ventilators by countries, which are putting their interests first. It's almost like every man or woman for him or herself now. And the other, other countries have to take care of themselves. A lot of countries will come with new industrial policies that emphasize and promote local manufacturing of medical supplies, personal protective equipment, and some will succeed better than others. And I hope that in Africa, we create centers of excellence around promoting African manufacturing in critical 
medical supplies and personal protective equipment going forward. I just want to add also that uh, and this is a very proactive action, uh, literally within the last maybe two days or so, by the Central Bank of Nigeria, being specific now, whereby it released a document. And really, if I summarize that document, it's like uh, calling it um, uh, a DIY revolution, do-it-yourself revolution, whereby he come up with schemes that's taken the first three months and then the first 18 months and then the next few years with specific programs uh, that's encouraging the Nigerian society, the business world, the whole society on how we can begin to do a lot of things we're hitherto importing. We can start doing it ourselves. And it was a very well-structured program. To the extent that it was even backed with all kinds of funding arrangements and uh, grants and things of that nature that would make this thing possible. So when you're talking about you know, post-COVID, this is uh, an action that is taken and one that is going to be backed up and funded and encouraged and obviously ask for additional participation uh, from different people. So I think that's a, a very sort of let's get on with it kind of attitude as opposed to still planning. He's saying, look, let's do it right now. And it just backs up what, uh, what's been said by Fred and Kuseni. Yeah, I, I hope that, uh, just a quick one, I hope that this uh, crisis will help the coordination and the collaboration between the private sector and the public sector and, and African governments. I think that's an important factor going forward from the standpoint of interacting and putting right policies together to just encourage more growth, both at the SME level and large corporate levels. But our, our lives will profoundly change. You've heard enough the other panelists talk about the changes they see, and I agree with most of them. And um, it'll be it'll be a whole different way of how we work. And uh, but there will, to Fred's point earlier, there will be opportunities as we go through this. Linda. Yes, uh, this has been a privilege and it's been freewheeling. You all have been, my panelists have been very well behaved. Uh, as I said, it, it is a, a false distinction, particularly in this, with this group between how you lead your organization and how you really address the needs of the people in your communities and in your countries. And that's exactly what one would like to see. One of the leaders that I studied who was one of the best I've ever seen at leading innovation reminded me that innovation is really a collective activity. And what he said is, you know what, when people have, when there's a necessity, people don't really want to follow you to the future, they actually want to co-create the future with you. And so what I've heard from all four of you is how do we get, how do we co-create the future together as we go through this fog and the next one or whatever is going to come up. But maybe this time we want to make sure we learn the lessons and that we've had from the past, but that we'd be open to thinking about new ways of being. And this really reminds us all of our interdependence. And there is, even though that with that interdependence, there can come isolation and, and not looking out, but you will all are telling us, look up, look out, because that is where we actually are going to be able to save, how we're going to be able to save ourselves and our communities. I, it has been a humbling experience. It has been a privilege. Teresa, we have to thank you and Africa.com. I'm sure my panelists agree in allowing us to reflect and share our, our, our thoughts on what we can do to help make a difference as leaders in this world. Thank you. Uh, no, I, I must thank you. The thanks go to you, Linda, for stopping in the midst of everything that all the demands that are being made on you from your university. This is not part of your job. You don't get paid to do this. You did this out of your love for Africa. Absolute I thank, love. I know that. And I thank you, panelists, um, in Fred, Jay, Kuseni, Felucio. Thank you. There are huge demands on you. You're trying to 
um, make sure that the organizations, the very complex and multinational organizations that work across borders in Africa survive, that your, that your communities survive, that your employees survive, and for you to take time to share with others and inspire them um, means a tremendous amount. So we'd like to thank the media partners that we have that again came on board in a matter of hours to um, get the word out about this effort. And um, we work with these players um, throughout the year. And when we told them that we wanted to do this, any elements of competition went out the window. Everyone realized that this group of um, experts is an extraordinary group of people that um, anyone would want to hear from, and especially the very senior audience that we have. So I'd like to specifically thank the Mail and Guardian, Ventures Africa, Africa Investor, iAfrica, Capital in Ethiopia, African Leadership Magazine, the African Press Organization Group, She Leads Africa. We also want to mention um, that Linda Hill is writing a piece on leadership during COVID-19. And when it is produced, it will be on the Harvard Business School website. You can go to hbs.edu and the school is making available for free all of its materials around COVID and crisis management. So you can go to hbs.edu. There are materials from other Harvard faculty available for free today. And Linda's piece will be available in due course, not too long from now. So with that, thank you very much. And we look forward to seeing all of you participants for the next three weeks as we continue to work together to expand our knowledge, inspire our thoughts, figure out innovation, and learn how we can come out of this on the other side as the African continent. Thank you very much.